Please pray with me. Oh Lord, I pray that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple of weeks ago when we were looking ahead at the services, Justin texted me and he said, those are some strange selections. He was referring to Jeremiah 20, which if it didn't take you off your guard, it should have. I can't remember who said it. Oh, the name will come back to me. One of the great poets said that if you're not startled in reading the Bible, you're not paying attention. And Jeremiah 20 is one of those passages. And Psalm 69, where the people of God are face to face with what it means to live faithfully and can't figure it out, or struggling, willing to step forward in faith, but saying, God, this doesn't make sense. Can't you do something about this? Those passages fit with the gospel reading, and it's the gospel reading that I want to focus on. But you could go back and read Psalm 69 and Jeremiah 20 and see them as expressions of people who are wrestling with the truth proclaimed in the gospel passage. People wrestling with what it means to live these things out. Matthew 10, the gospel passage, is a record of Jesus' instructions to disciples before sending them out on a particular mission. It's a very particular mission. He's sending them out to the towns of Galilee, and he's sending them out as his envoys to go to these places and announce the kingdom of God and heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons. And they're doing this as sort of an advance guard before he comes. It's a particular moment in his ministry, and he wants to lay the groundwork before his arrival in each of these towns. And in this particular moment, in this particular mission, he gives instructions that fit the time and the place, instructions that don't fit later missions. And so he says to them, as a part of these instructions, don't go anywhere other than the towns of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go, go to the Gentiles. And we know that those particular instructions are revoked later in the Great Commission when he calls the church to go to the very ends of the earth. There's instructions about packing light. Don't take money, don't take a knapsack, don't take anything extra. Instructions that fit the urgency of this moment, but don't carry over to all missions and ministries later on. In other words, some of what he says in this moment doesn't apply later on. But the weirdness of these instructions is that it's almost like Jesus' vision telescopes. Because as he's giving these instructions to people for this very urgent, very quick ministry, he begins to see ahead what will come. He begins to see ahead things that, properly speaking, will only happen in far later missions and ministries of the church. And so he begins to warn his apostles about the persecution to come, about being betrayed and taken before kings and governors and giving witness to Gentiles. And properly speaking, it's like Jesus is seeing past Pentecost into the life of the church empowered by the Spirit as it goes throughout all the world. He's giving instructions in a particular moment, but then prophetically sees beyond that to all ministries and missions of the church. And in that seeing beyond and giving warnings for what's to come, we hear this very real instruction and warning given. 
that there will be times in the mission and ministry of the church when you aren't received well. In fact, there'll be times in the mission and ministry of the church when you're hated, mocked, persecuted, derided. And in that context of those times to come, he gives them instructions for how do you handle it in these moments. Now, from all the evidence that we know, this immediate urgent ministry in Galilee to prepare the way for Jesus Christ didn't result in those times. In fact, there are no kings and governors in Galilee to be dragged before. There's a tetrarch, but no king or governor. These are things to come later. But in this warning, he's setting the stage for them that in all Christian mission, this can occur. And in all Christian mission, when this occurs, there is a way to respond to it that's correct. It's worth noting that this isn't always what happens. It's worth noting that the church in its mission doesn't always meet with persecution and hatred and mockery. In fact, if we jump forward just post-Pentecost and we get to the first time that Peter and John are dragged before the Sanhedrin, the first thing that you could call persecution, in that moment, 5,000 families have already said yes. 5,000 families have already come into the kingdom. Jesus isn't telling the whole story when he talks about the persecution and the mockery that can come. In many ages and times, there's thousands and tens of thousands who turn to the Lord and who receive the news with joy and gladness. Jesus isn't talking about that portion of the experience. In fact, you could say, well, the instructions at that moment might look a little different. Because those are the moments when we're tempted to be proud and think that we've done a great thing and think it's all on us and think highly of ourselves. And the instructions might be more about humility. But in the moment when the world responds with mockery, derision, even persecution, the instructions sound different. What do you do when people don't want to hear? What do you do when they reject the word of Jesus? It's true we don't live in places where persecution is to the point of life or death. We are not in North Korea. We are not in Eritrea. We are not in Nigeria. Places where even now to speak the name of Jesus in certain places puts your life at risk. But we do have to deal with people who think it's stupid to believe that a man who lived 2,000 years ago is the Lord of the universe who has to be obeyed. We do live with, at best, a plight indifference and, at worst, a derision towards the basic principles that Jesus is judge, that we are accountable before him, that he's savior, that there is no other way, that he's truth, that everything that we believe needs to be filtered through Jesus Christ. We do live in a world that's increasingly indifferent at best and hostile at worst. And so we need to understand from Jesus if this is how you behave when the stakes are really high, how do you behave when the stakes are partially high? How do you respond? And Jesus' instructions in this passage are ones that we need to hear. He tells the church, and I think this is the thing that's actually like just astounding from the very beginning. He tells the church that I'm sending you. It's so easy when what we face 
is anything but glad, a glad sort of invitation to come in when people are wanting to hear. It's so easy when we're, when we're not facing that to, to back away. Say, well, they don't want to hear. They're not interested. But the very first thing that Jesus tells his disciples in these instructions is, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. I want you to go there. I want you to go speak. I want you to be witnesses in my name. I want you to go out to them and tell them what I have done in your life. Tell them who I am. He says, I'm sending you. But he says, I'm sending you. And and there's no sugarcoating the fact that there's hostility out there. But he says, I'm sending you in a particular way. They might be wolves sometimes. But you're supposed to go like a sheep. And we say, Lord, wouldn't it be better to send a soldier, a warrior, anything? If there are wolves out there, can't we? And he says, no, I want you to go out there like a sheep. I want you to go there with a particular docility, a particular tenderness, a particular harmlessness. But then he says to him, you should be wise and crafty like a serpent. Don't be an idiot. Be smart. Pay attention to the things that don't make sense to the world. Learn to speak in a way they can understand. You're allowed to be wise, crafty, subtle, looking for the people who are willing to receive. He says, if they hit you in one town, you can go to the next. This isn't go out and be a sitting duck. It's not chosen martyrdom. But he says, go be crafty. Look for the ways of speaking to your culture that would make sense to them. Look for the ways of explaining things in a way that they can understand. As I was thinking about this, I was actually, I kept in my mind going back to the chosen is a beautiful example of what it means to be as wise as a serpent in our culture. Because it's presented in such a winsome and beautiful way that you have people who are hostile to the faith willing to actually participate, not just in watching this, but in crafting the show itself. That's staggering to me. It's an example of being wise and shrewd and recognizing that there's ways of speaking that people receive, not as a compromise of the truth, but actually a way of speaking that actually makes sense to the world. But he warns them in that subtlety, that craftiness, you're as innocent as a dove. It's not a craftiness that takes advantage of people. It's not a craftiness that causes their harm. It's not a craftiness that wants to get something over on them. Innocent like a dove, and yet wise as a serpent. He tells them and he sends them out that they should be free from anxiety, confident that the Spirit will work through you. This one, I don't know about you, but this one is, I think, hard for me. To go with the confidence that the Spirit would speak, that God's actually committed to working through his children. To go with confidence that because we see rejection or we see people who are disinterested, and the immediate assumption is this doesn't work. Doesn't work. But he says, don't be anxious. Don't you know that the Spirit of the Father is the one speaking through you? These are instructions, like I said, that I think we need to wrestle with. Because when we are dismissed, when we are rejected, it is too easy to withdraw rather than to see ourselves as the sent one for other people. This is the place where I would encourage you, whether you're thinking of work or whether you're thinking of a family member, think concretely 
of those people who push back against Jesus. Think concretely of them and see how easy it is for us to do everything other than what Jesus instructs us in these moments. To withdraw rather than to say, no, perhaps God put me in their life so that I could be the sent one for them. Think about all the times that because something comes at us as hostility, we respond with just as much hostility. We respond with just as much vehemence and just as much anger, sort of trading blow for blow. It's so easy to slip into that pattern. It's not fair the way they've spoken of me, and therefore, and we come back fist swinging. But Jesus' command, harmless as doves, like sheep in the midst of wolves. He doesn't, and this one doesn't make sense to the world. He doesn't send us out to trade blows. He says, I send you out like sheep, like doves. And yet he says, be subtle, be crafty. Think about those people, those situations, and how easily we don't struggle to think, how could I speak to them? We don't wrestle with it and pray about it. We don't seek means and modes of speaking that would make sense. We just give up because it didn't work. Or we keep beating on the same drum, wondering why they're not listening. And Jesus says, be, be subtle, be wise, be smart about this. Think about how easy it is to be anxious in those moments. Wondering what we'll be able to say. And Jesus says, do you not know that the Spirit is with you? To be honest, this one cut me this week because I spend so much time trying to purposely craft how to communicate the truth of God. And I thought, do I really actually trust that the Spirit speaks? Or do I just trust Stephen Breedlove's words? And it was a challenge to me to actually believe that the Spirit would use the Word of God to do what the Word of God will do. And I don't need to be perfect in my way of speaking it. That was a challenge to me. And my guess is, is you think about family members who are hostile to Jesus. It's easy to slip into the pattern. If only I had done, if only I had said, if only, search, not trusting that the Spirit might actually use your clumsy and fumbling words. Not trusting that the Spirit would use your life when it's lived like a dove or a sheep in their presence to transform them. Beneath all of these commands is a profound trust. It takes trust for a sheep to go amongst wolves. And we say, yeah, foolish trust. It takes trust to go out as harmless and innocent as a dove. It takes trust to believe that the Spirit would speak and work in our lives, in the lives of those who are hostile to the faith. There is a profound trust beneath all of this passage. And yet through it, there's promise after promise after promise. The Spirit of the Father will speak through your words. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You see the promise in Jesus' declaration of, don't you know the Father doesn't miss a single sparrow? And don't you realize you are so much more precious to him than a sparrow? Your life is not forgotten. It's not missed. It's not overlooked by him. There's trust that we have to come to the table with when we hear Jesus' promise 
Listen, if you declare me before men, I will declare you before the courts of heaven, before the Father and the angels. I will parade you and say, look at that one. She didn't back down. And we say we back down so falteringly and we're grateful that he's so forgiving in this. But the promise that, look, you don't have to be perfect and get it all right. Just stand in my name in front of other people. And then in return, I exalt you in yours. The promises are laced through this passage. And it calls for trust. It calls for us to come to the Lord and say, I believe you at your word. And even if it doesn't feel like it, because I believe that your word is the most trustworthy thing, I will step into this precarious place, this precarious place of being faithful to you, of speaking your name, of acting like a dove, a sheep, when people are hostile, of seeking ways to be wise, even if I can't figure it out. It takes trust, but in that trust, we can have the confidence that he calls for. Like I said, it's a passage that I think that we need to wrestle with in a world that is increasingly disinterested in or even hostile to the truth of Jesus. Because it is, like I said, so easy for us to respond in the ways of the world, fighting and swinging and hurting when we're not listened to or when we're overlooked. But what Jesus calls us to is something profoundly different, profoundly gentler. As I wrestled with this passage this week, though, the thing that I kept coming back to is this very, very simple statement that in this passage, Jesus is giving instruction for the disciples. But in this passage, more than anything, he is describing his own ministry. He's describing himself as he calls the apostles to a particular sort of life and as he calls us to that life. I think it's actually easy for us to not appreciate Jesus' humanity. Because he's God, you're like, well, it's easy for him. Easy. We don't take his humanity seriously. We don't appreciate the fact that he, too, had to live by faith. I don't know if that seems like a strange statement to you. It's so easy to think, well, Jesus had perfect knowledge, and he comes in with all the power, and he can take it, and there's nothing that threatens him. And we forget Philippians 2, that even though he had everything, he willingly emptied himself and became like a servant. Or we forget Hebrews 5, he learned obedience through suffering. The Son of God learning to obey through suffering? We forget 1 Peter 2, 23, he entrusted himself to the Father. I'm putting my life in your hands, and I'm not going to try to take control of it. We forget John 5, Jesus saying, I only do what the Father reveals to me to do. I only say what he tells me to say. We forget, in other words, that in the incarnation, he took on our state, and he knows what it means to live in faith when it looks dark and scary in front of you. When he faced the temptation of the devil to choose another way, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you do it on the devil's terms, that was a real temptation. The same temptation that faces us, to have power, but have it on the terms of the devil rather than the terms of the Son of God. These were real temptations. The Garden of Gethsemane was not a charade. 
Jesus wrestled with the anguish of what this calling was. I was reading this passage and thinking you could almost imagine it spoken by the Father to the Son. Imagine the Father saying, Behold, I'm sending you out as a sheep, and there's going to be a wolf all around you, a wolf at every corner. Be wise, crafty like a snake, but be innocent among them. Be harmless like a dove. Be cautious, though, with them because they're going to hurt you. They're going to drag you in front of their courts. They're going to flog you. You'll be dragged before a governor and a king for my sake. But you'll bear witness. Even Gentiles will hear it. When they drag you and arrest you and beat you, don't be anxious what to say. Just wait. At the right moment, the Spirit will give you the words. The Spirit is going to anoint you and empower you to speak when it's time. One of your brothers, a man you trained for ministry, a man you spent three years with loving, he's going to deliver you over. Even the others will betray you and run away in the end. And you'll be hated and mocked by everyone. But endure, because you will be raised in the end. He says, so don't be afraid of them. Nothing that happens to you will not be revealed. It will look like darkness in the moment, but it will come into the light. Don't be afraid of those who can destroy your body, but cannot actually harm you. Instead, fear me. Respect your Father who holds your body and soul together. Don't you realize, son, that I love all that I've created? Not one of my birds falls without me knowing it, but I love you even more. Don't be afraid, then. You're more valuable to me than all of the birds. Acknowledge me before these men, and I will exalt you before all the heavens. You hear it as a description of the ministry of Jesus, and it's beautiful, is it? The beauty of that, as I wrestled with that perspective this week, is I realized that we are called into nothing other than the ministry of Jesus. This isn't a new path. We're called to step into what's already been done. I was thinking this week about those places where no one dares go until somebody proves that it can be done. I was thinking about the Green River outside Asheville, North Carolina. It's got a stretch called the Narrows that nobody thought could be kayaked. It's too deadly. But then in 1988, a guy did it. And people realized it could be done. And now there's a race held there every year where person after person goes down it. The path of walking into the world as innocent as a dove and as harmless as a sheep, that path has already been walked. And so for us to be called into that is not to go into some place that we can't go or to go into some place that will destroy us. It's simply to go behind Jesus. As I thought about this passage, I also kept coming back to the fact that it is laced through with the Trinity's promises. The fact that it's the Son himself who would send. It's not our own initiative, not things we need to figure out ourselves. The fact that the Spirit is promised to speak and to be with us. And the fact that the Father is there all the while, watching in love, protecting, holding our lives in the palm of his hand. The fact that the Son is waiting at the end to exalt those 
who hold his name high. The Trinity and the full promises of the Trinity are present throughout this. But more than anything, my hope this morning is that you see Jesus walking this path for you. Walking this path of being willing to be harmed for you because of the value that you hold in the Father's eyes. That's what drove him into this path of darkness and loneliness was the value that you hold in the Father's eyes. And so if you remember anything today, remember that. Amen.